The gods had condemned Sisyphus to ceaselessly rolling a rock to the top of a mountain, whence the stone would fall back of its own weight. They had thought, with some reason, that there is no more dreadful punishment than futile and hopeless labor. If one believes Homer, Sisyphus was the wisest and most prudent of mortals. According to another tradition, however, he was disposed to practice the profession of highwayman. I see no contradiction in this. Opinions differ as to the reasons why he became the futile laborer of the underworld. To begin with, he is accused of a certain levity in regard to the gods. He stole their secrets. Aegina, the daughter of Aesopus, was carried off by Jupiter. The father was shocked by that disappearance and complains to Sisyphus. He, who knew of the abduction, offered to tell about it, on condition that Aesopus would give water to the citadel of Corinth. To the celestial thunderbolts, he preferred the benediction of water. He was punished for this in the underworld. Homer tells us also that Sisyphus had put death in chains. Pluto could not endure the sight of his deserted, silent empire. He dispatched the god of war, who liberated death from the hands of her conqueror. It is said that Sisyphus, being near to death, rashly wanted to test his wife's love. He ordered her to cast his unburied body into the middle of the public square. Sisyphus woke up in the underworld, and there, annoyed by an obedience so contrary to human love, he obtained from Pluto permission to return to Earth in order to chastise his wife. But when he had seen again the face of this world, enjoyed water and sun, warm stones and the sea, he no longer wanted to go back to the infernal darkness. Recalls, signs of anger, warnings were of no avail. Many years more he lived facing the curve of the gulf, the sparkling sea, and the smiles of Earth. A decree of the gods was necessary. Mercury came and seized the impudent man by the collar, and, snatching him from his joys, led him forcibly back to the underworld where his rock was ready for him. You have already grasped that Sisyphus is the absurd hero. He is as much through his passions as through his torture. His scorn of the gods, his hatred of death, and his passion for life won him that unspeakable penalty in which the whole being is exerted toward accomplishing nothing. This is the price that must be paid for the passions of this earth. Nothing is told to us about Sisyphus in the underworld. Myths are made for the imagination to breathe life into them. As for this myth, one sees merely the whole effort of a body straining to raise the huge stone, to roll it, and push it up a slope a hundred times over. One sees the face screwed up, the cheek tight against the stone, the shoulder bracing the clay-covered mass, the foot wedging it, the fresh start with arms outstretched, the holy human security of two earth-clotted hands. At the very end of his long effort, measured by skyless space and time without depth, the purpose is achieved. Then Sisyphus watches the stone rush down in a few moments toward that lower world, whence he will have to push it up again toward the summit. He goes back down to the plain. It is during that return, that pause, that Sisyphus interests me. A face that toils so close to stones is already stone itself. I see that man going back down with a heavy yet measured step toward the torment of which he will never know the end. That hour like a breathing space which returns as surely as his suffering, that is the hour of consciousness. At each of those moments when he leaves the heights and gradually sinks toward the lairs of the gods, he is superior to his fate. He is stronger than his rock. If this myth is tragic, that is because its hero is conscious. Where would his torture be, indeed, if at every step the hope of succeeding upheld him? The workman of today works every day in his life at the same tasks, and his fate is no less absurd. But it is tragic only at the rare moments when it becomes conscious. 
Sisyphus, proletarian of the gods, powerless and rebellious, knows the whole extent of his wretched condition. It is what he thinks of during his descent. The lucidity that was to constitute his torture at the same time crowns his victory. There is no fate that cannot be surmounted by scorn. If the descent is thus sometimes performed in sorrow, it can also take place in joy. This word is not too much. Again, I fancy Sisyphus returning toward his rock, and the sorrow was in the beginning. When the images of earth cling too tightly to memory, when the call of happiness becomes too insistent, it happens that melancholy arises in man's heart. This is the rock's victory. This is the rock itself. The boundless grief is too heavy to bear. These are our nights of Gethsemane. But crushing truths per perish from being acknowledged. Thus, Oedipus at the outset obeys fate without knowing it. But from the moment he knows his tragedy begins, yet, at the same moment, blind and desperate, he realizes that the only bond linking him to the world is the cool hand of a girl. Then a tremendous remark rings out. Despite so many ordeals, my advanced age and the nobility of my soul make me conclude that all is well. Sophocles' Oedipus, like Dostoevsky's Kirillov, thus gives the recipe for the absurd victory. Ancient wisdom confirms, confirms modern heroism. One does not discover the absurd without being tempted to write a manual of happiness. What? By such narrow ways? There is but one world, however. Happiness and the absurd are two sons of the same earth. They are inseparable. It would be a mistake to say that happiness necessarily springs from the absurd discovery. It happens as well that the felling of the absurd springs from happiness. I conclude that all is well, says Oedipus, and that remark is sacred. It echoes in the wild and limited universe of man. It teaches that all is not, has not been exhausted. It drives out of this world a god who had come into it with dissatisfaction and a preference for futile suffering. It makes of fate a human matter which must be settled among men. All Sisyphus' silent joy is contained therein. His fate belongs to him. His rock is a thing. Likewise, the absurd man, when he contemplates his torment, silences all the idols. In the universe, suddenly restored to its silence, the myriad wandering little voices of the earth rise up. Unconscious, secret calls, invitations from all the faces, they are the necessary reverse and price of victory. There is no sun without shadow, and it is essential to know the night. The absurd man says yes, and his efforts will henceforth be unceasing. If there is a personal fate, there is no higher destiny, or at least there is, but one which he concludes is inevitable and despicable. For the rest, he knows himself to be the master of his days. At that subtle moment, when man glances backward over his life, Sisyphus returning toward his rock, in that slight pivoting, he contemplates that series of unrelated actions which become his fate, created by him, combined under his memory's eye and soon sealed by his death. Thus, convinced of the wholly human origin of all that is human, a blind man eager to see who knows that the night has no end, he is still on the go, the rock is still rolling. I leave Sisyphus at the foot of the mountain. One always finds one's burden again. But Sisyphus teaches the higher fidelity that negates the gods and raises rocks. He too concludes that all is well. This universe henceforth without a master seems to him neither sterile nor futile. Each atom of that stone, each mineral flake of that night-filled mountain in itself forms a world. The struggle itself toward the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. I'm always saying that.
listening to Socialist Shelf Radio. Welcome back to the Socialist Shelf, where we will be discussing today The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus, which you already heard. You heard it just now. At least you heard the, uh, you know, The Myth of Sisyphus portion. It is a part of a longer essay, not too long, but a longer philosophical essay on absurdism, which uh, I don't necessarily encourage you to read. Um, but uh, yeah, you heard the sort of story part of it. And this is a bit of a uh, new territory for us. This is a philosophical text, but we figured, you know, it's adjacent enough to a short story. It's adjacent enough to a novel. I think we can take a crack on it. Unless, you know, you consider um, consider the writings of um, uh, Rich DeVos to be theory. In which case, this is our second theoretical text. It, it, is, it is a theory. <laughs> Uh, it's a discredited one and a a dangerous one but you know DeVos is a theorist or was a theorist nonetheless um but yeah no but today we're talking about Albert Camus um and absurdism so Joss before we kind of get into this do you have any history with Albert Camus any history with absurdism any particular interest in this guy or this theory so I haven't a background in philosophy I don't um, I was the one person, or one of a very few people in my graduating class, who did not read The Stranger. Um, and that's a long story that I won't get into here. Um, I knew a couple of people who self-identified in high school as absurdists, to which in my head I was like, no, you're fucking not, you're 16. But, you know, again, I am, um, this is my first brush with, uh, with Albert Camus, certainly. Um, I had a friend once in college, I, I still have a friend, we still talk, um, and when I would talk to him about, like, English, right, um, I would talk to him, yeah, you know, I did this assignment where, like, we pick a word from Shakespeare, we go to the Oxford English Dictionary, we tease out all the meanings of that scene based around various readings of that word. Sure. And, you know, he himself was a STEM guy, he's very intelligent, but, you know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't really read uh, Shakespeare and uh, that kind of thing, He and he told me straight up that... You know, I'm surprised you could get more than, you know, a word out of a word, you know, just different frame of reference, you know, different sort of, you know, interest academically. And Camus kind of feels like uh, my, uh, I feel like, I feel like you can only get a word out of a word moment, you know? Yeah, no, that makes sense. That, that, that absolutely makes sense. Well, as for me, um... I, in high school, got really fascinated with Camus. I was at a uh, month-long program, uh, summer program, where I was studying communicative arts between my junior and senior year. Um, And I had a uh, brief, and by brief, I mean week-long, five-day class on absurdism and and some other philosophy, existentialism, different stuff, talking about these different um, authors, Sartre, Camus, whatnot. Um, And I got really fascinated with the concept of absurdism. Now, I came from a very like, you know, sort of religious background. I was like looking for, you know, well, what do other people believe outside of this sort of um, strain of like um, American evangelical Protestantism I'd grown up with. And I kind of came to the conclusion. I was like, well, I'm going to look for more stuff. I'm going to see what people believe. And I first read Absurdism. I read The Stranger. I read The Myth of Sisyphus. I read the full essay. And I'm like, this guy's got arguments. This guy's got points. This guy is making, you know, a, a philosophical worldview that... Um, isn't, you know, deeply nihilistic and depressing necessarily because he says that there still can be meaning, there's whatever. So this is awesome. I can't believe this kind of thing existed. And then I realized like, 
oh no, this guy is just like the first philosopher I read, really. And there's a lot more opinions out there. So I had like a few days of just deep obsession with this guy as like a, I don't know, 16, 17 year old. Um, but I've, you know, retained information on him and stayed interested in him. I flirted, you know, later on with the concept of, oh, am I an absurdist or whatever? I definitely, I wouldn't call myself that now. I thought you were going to say I flirted with him. <laughs> I flirted with Kimu, his ghost. Yeah. Um, so true. So many other people did. And he, he, he did quite a bit of that. But um, Camus is a guy that, you know, well, I, I have a lot to say about him. I have a lot of thoughts on him. I, as a personally do not call myself an absurdist, but I find it to be as a philosophy. Um, I mean, it's, it's more intellectually honest than I guess a lot of philosophical traditions, but um, Camus himself, strange guy. And I kind of want to talk about him as we get into this text, uh, because this is so deeply tied up with him. Albert Camus is born in 1913 in French Algeria. This is Algeria, Basically, you know, colonized by the French Empire at this time. Very poor family, despite, you know, being a Frenchman. Um, his father died in World War I before he was born. Uh, and, you know, just pretty poor. Had to live with his uncle a lot of the time. Had to uh, scrape by as a kid. Had to work. Um, was briefly interested and quite good at football, soccer. we got a string of uh, uncle guys going, right? Uncle guys. We, we love an uncle guy. Uh, the uncle-nephew bond for, really forges a great author. Uh, but he um, was really good at soccer, football, whatever you want to call it. Um, came down with tuberculosis at 16. Um, really ruined him physically for the rest of his life. He still tried to do sports and stuff. Later would try and fight in World War II. Was not allowed at any turn. Dude was just very sickly. And that kind of turned him in a more pessimistic direction. Um, he could only even go to secondary school part-time in his teens because he had to work. Had some really strange jobs. Like, he was doing odd jobs, but he was, like, randomly, like, clerking at the weather service and stuff. Like, he just was getting different jobs. Um, but, and and he had, you know, a bad time. He was a lower class. But notably, despite that, I mean, he was upper class relative to, you know, the natives living in Algeria, as well as, you know, the, the you know, the native Africans, the, uh, the, the Arab people living there, that he was treated better than them. And he did note that to his credit, uh, while he has some issues on race, certainly he did like, he was aware of that inequality. Mm -hmm. Um, and it did strike him. Um, he read extensively, um, especially, uh, Greek philosophy, because that was just what he had access to. Um, Nietzsche, he was interested in, who was, you know, obviously more recent to him than he is to us, managed to get a scholarship, went to the University of Algiers and got a bachelor's in philosophy. Um, that's where he became an atheist. Uh, despite studying extensively Christian philosophy, he found it to be very interesting and also wrong, is what he said. Um, also got really into Kafka at this time. Um, who doesn't? Was, yeah, exactly. Um, we'll get into Kafka. We'll get really into Kafka too. <laughs> He got married to another student, Simone. It's hard to say her last name. H-I-E. I think it's Hi He. I'm not sure. She's not an important character to the story. Hi He. Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. She's not an important character because she had a terrible morphine addiction and he divorced her shortly after marrying her when he learned she was in a relationship with a doctor that supplied her with the morphine. Oh. Really dark, uh, <laughs> really dark story. Unclear from my reading how much she's a victim, how much she played him, how much whatever. I'm not sure. 
Camus just was like, I got to get away from this. It also hurt his relationship with his family because his family told him not to marry her. And, and, and they were like, hey, man, we were right. In 1935, Camus joins the French Communist Party, but immediately abandons it to join the Algerian Communist Party, which is formed a few months after he joins the French Communist Party because he's like, hey, I live in Algeria. He was not a communist and he never called himself a communist. He never called himself a Marxist. He occasionally would call himself a libertarian socialist, but didn't even highly identify with the term socialism. But they were the only people around, he said, that were addressing the inequality between the Europeans and the natives Algerians. I was about to say, like, the... the the and I don't know about this, of course, but it seems to me that the primary difference would between the Algerian Communist Party and the French Communist Party would be the colonial question. That's exactly right. He he, um, this guy has a lot of contradictions. He had a lot of good opinions in theory, and we would see when it came time to put up or shut up, he often shut up. Um, we'll get into that, but he was saying he hated the fact that the French Communist Party was always saying, yeah, and we'll make Algeria an official part of France and give all the Algerians equal citizenship to the French. And he's like, yeah, equal citizenship in their own country. They deserve their own nation. They deserve self-determination. He was saying that Algeria shouldn't be made part of France, which is like, I mean, the correct. And that's what the Algerian Communist Party believed, hence his break. Um, at this time, he organized workers' theater, uh, workers theater throughout the 30s, was really into that. Some of his... Plays he wrote at this time would be basis for later manuscripts, but got expelled from the party for his erratic behavior, being a bit of a troll, openly saying, I'm not a Marxist in a communist party. Eventually, they had to kick this guy despite his talent. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's completely reasonable. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, it's discipline, right? Yes, like, he you, lacked that. Yeah, you have, you have people wandering around saying, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not a Marxist, you know, I'm this, that, the other, like, you know. That's not how you present a united front, a united face to the people that you're trying to organize. Also, like, mid-1930s, <laughs> it's time to close ranks, dog. I don't know what to tell you. Mm -hmm. Like, it's World War II is on the horizon. You know, there's that Hitler guy over there, but, I mean, you know, it's... He's wavering, yeah. Yeah. You and he would waver. get... He, got no, he was apparently constantly picking fights about Stalin and stuff, and people would be like, dude, we're in Algeria. Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> so, 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 like, fucking, you know, I mean, occupies the same space as Orwell, then. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say... It, I don't think Camus was like ever worked for the British government, <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I also, yeah. And I'll, but I see, yeah, there's, there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't comment on his, you know, intelligence connections or not. I have no idea about that. I, I couldn't find anything cause I was interested. I, I genuinely do think he did believe everything he espoused. Um, he does strike me as that kind of guy. Right. Um, <laughs> now in 1938, he started writing for a paper called the Algier Republican, um, Republican in the sense of like Republican Spain, uh, railing against fascism and colonialism. He um, was fired from the paper, sort of. I mean, the paper was, he was fired, the paper was banned, it all kind of fell apart very quickly. Um, and he went to Paris in 1940. Not a good time to go to Paris, let me tell you. Oh, no. He became the editor in chief at the Paris Soir. Um, would not stay there long because the paper would be banned under Nazi occupation. This is where he started writing his first cycle, which he did several times. He would write a novel, then an essay, then a play. This first cycle, The Stranger, The Myth of Sisyphus, then Caligula. Um, he was rejected from the army for health reasons. He really wanted to kill fascists. Like he does, his big thing is he just fucking hates authoritarianism in any form. He does not really delineate between authoritarian working class rule and authoritarian bourgeois rule. Hence, you know, his 
his issues with the Soviet Union. Also, he was kind of working with bad information, but on some things. But he really wanted to kill fascists, uh, but they rejected him. Um, at the end of 1940, he married Francine Farr, a pianist and a mathematician who has a very interesting career in her own right. What did she think about morphine? What did you say? What did she think about morphine? Uh, not much about it, which is one of the selling points on her, for him. Um, at this point, they went to the Alps, both because people were dying here around Paris really quickly, and also his health was bad. He then wrote The Plague and The Misunderstanding um, and kind of began to be known in literary circles. Uh, he befriended John Paul Sartre, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, and André Breton in 1943 uh, as the war is continuing to escalate. Um, he eventually, he would spend some time back in Paris. He'd slip in and out as this sort of intelligentsia guy. Like, he kind of was treated not fine by the occupation, but they allowed him to kind of move about as he wanted to. They didn't see this sickly, like, little guy as a threat. Um, he... I couldn't find evidence he ever actually fought as part of the occupation, but he did run an anti-occupation newspaper called The Combat for the rest of the war um, and would argue for the necessity of resistance mm -hmm. against occupation. Yeah. You know, critical thing to argue for. Yes. He became very successful and well off after the war. Um, he was kind of got a lot of cred for being this anti-fascist in this period. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people at the time who sacrificed their beliefs out of fear of repression. And he was one of the uh, members of the sort of the um, scholarly class that didn't do that. So that people appreciated that for him. Um, but uh, at this time, he also starts like mad beef with like other socialists. I mean, say other socialists. He didn't really call himself one. He really starts calling himself an anarchist at this time, an anarcho-syndicalist, uh, social libertarian, different terms he uses. He was involved in labor, labor organizing, but he was also spending equal amount of time like speaking against the USSR. Um, he then further broke with the Marxist left when he condemned the violence used of the by the resistance in colonial Algeria. And he said the occupation of Algeria must end peacefully. He, Which is interesting because he had just spent the last several years talking about the necessity of violence against the fascist Oh, uh, yes, violence for me, but not for thee, you know? Exactly. And this is where I get into the put-up-or-shut-up bit, right? Because it was in France, it was admittedly social suicide to say, hey, the people being bombed, like the bombs going off in Algiers are justified. Like, that was not a popular position. People's careers were being destroyed over it. But he had seen Algeria. He had, in theory, organized against the occupation. And now he was kind of doing this, like, we need a peaceful resolution. He believed in this, this uh, peaceful resolution to such an extent that he traveled to Algeria to try and get both sides to sit down together. Both sides told him to fuck off. Both of them called him unserious. The colonizers and the colonized both were like, who is this guy? Uh, we don't recognize you. He then got even angrier. He called the revolt Arab imperialism ran by Egypt and the USSR. At this point, John Paul Sartre is like, I'm going to not be your friend anymore for a while. Um, they would kind of be on again, off again. This is the timeline where the Boazizi Empire comes about. Yeah, it really, I mean, he's really calling the Boazizi Empire from American war at this time. I mean, he seems to think Egypt is going to be this like next great power. Um, he thinks of everything in terms of like how authoritarian they are, right? Yeah, like what's you know who who's going to who's going to seize some some like important globe spanning lever of power? Like it's the and I haven't looked into it again, but like the the first thing that I can think of when he's like, oh man, it, Egypt's going to be like the thing is like, okay, they have the Suez Canal, right? Yeah, like he's thinking of global trade. I 
I don't know. I can't speak intelligently on that, but like that just seems like the sort of thing he would latch onto. He has a quote where he said, people are now planting bombs in the tramways of Algiers. My mother might be on one of those tramways. If that is justice, then I prefer my mother over justice. Um, and, you know, one can feel some sympathy for him. Like, I'm worried about my mom who lives in Algiers. But it's also a situation where it's like, well, first of all, he's a man of means. If he wants to get his mom out of Algiers, he can. Second of all, he's got to, you know, realize the fact that he stood for national liberation. He said he he, he said he believed in this. I mean, he bombed, he was involved in people who were bombing tramways in Paris and, and, and whatnot when mm -hmm. they were occupied. I mean, it's difficult and it's messy and it's whatever. Um, but, you know, a, a serious criticism for that and obviously serious criticism for like, and received from his own uh, compatriots on the left of like going after the USSR in this period where like USSR had just like liberated so much of Europe. Yeah. Like so many people in France at this time were like, what are you, are you crazy? Like John Paul Sartre would later become a Marxist, like not long after this, just because he's like, these guys are the guys who's whatever. And this makes intellectual sense. Oh yeah. You know, public opinion in the UK and France at that time, I mean, you know, everybody's seen the chart, right? It, mm -hmm. it, everybody still acknowledged that, yeah, you know, the Red Army is the liberator of Europe, right? The, and that hadn't, you know, the, the propaganda hadn't shifted that yet. So he briefly worked with the United Nations on human rights campaigns, but resigned when they let in Spain in 1952. Once again, very just anti-authoritarian in any sense. Mm -hmm. uh, he was one of the founders of the People's World Convention in 1952 with Albert Einstein to speak against nuclear weapons. Um, he also became a, a really anti-capital punishment. Um, he got this way after feeling incredibly guilty that he called for the execution of the Nazis who oversaw the occupation of Paris and they were executed. His paper was like calling. I mean, you could read his writings. They are calling for their heads, mm -hmm. rightfully so. And then when he got their heads, he felt guilty about it for the rest of his life. Um, I, I, I once again, like, I think he does genuinely believe this. I don't think he's being you know, an opportunist, but it's just like, what do you, what do you mean? Man? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, like I'm, I don't think he's trying to curry favor with any, it's like, just weird. Yeah. It's well, it speaks to, I think you're absolutely right about this, right? It speaks to somebody who is much more comfortable with theory and with thought experiments, right. And with, you know, discussing these things than with them actually playing out like there, you know, there is a right side of history that you can be on, you know, at various times, surprise, surprise. And, right. you know, executing, you know, the top Nazis, is one of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and he, you know, would continuously be a both sides guys. We've had those forever. So he would continuously say, he once had a famous speech where he called himself a libertarian socialist and said, the U.S. is not liberal um, and, and in the sense of like liberatory and the USSR is not socialist, but I am both. Um, and it's like, okay, cool. Oh, so so people kind of gave him the thumbs up. So he's like the sort of person who would like work really hard to recapture the term libertarian from, you know, what it's, you know. Yeah, for any, for no particular reason. And, and, and to like, I guess he is, this is an English translation. I don't know what the connotation over in France is. Mm -hmm. But um, it, his point though was drawing this equivalency. Yes. Um. In 1957, he wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, the second youngest winner ever. Um, and this is shortly after his depressive period, which I told Joss not to look up for an interesting reason. He gets very depressed. Some of his writing really reflects that. And I'll tell you why he was really depressed, why he had this depressive period. He cheated on his wife a bunch of times and his wife went to, had to be like, leave him for a while and go to like a mental institution. And he was so sad about it. 
And that's why he had his depressive period. I, I, I <laughs> he had a public affair with an actress, like a very public drawn out affair. His wife did not leave him over it. She just needed some time away. And so he had this very dramatic, very public, I'm in my depressive period. I never would have guessed that. Good <laughs> fucking God. Just the most dramatic shit, man. Oh man, and, and yeah, and he he made sure everyone knew how depressed he was. How depressed he was that he had a public affair with you know a woman who was not his wife. Well, <laughs> and then his wife was not happy about it. Basically, yeah. His wife, despite that, stayed with him. Um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> he dies in 1960 at age 48. He gets in a car accident. Um, at this time, he was working on what he called his finest work, The First Man, which was a novel based on growing up. Uh, his his own life experiences. He swore up and down it was going to be like the greatest thing he'd ever written. Um, the uh, pages of it were found in in the uh, car with him. I know like those have been released, but it's a very incomplete work. Um, Sartre did end up giving a eulogy. Uh, William Faulkner wrote his obituary. It was widely, you know, people were saying like this is really sad. This dude just won the Nobel Prize three years ago. Like, this guy was going to do a lot more. Yeah, and instead he wrote the .65th man. Mm -hmm. Yes, basically. Um, and that's um, the third man. Um, <laughs> so, that, and that's how his career ended. It Kind of an absurdist way of going out, to be honest, considering how much he thought about suicide. But he's kind of considered the, I, he would reject this term, but he is kind of considered the absurdist figure um, to call him the father of absurdism would be wrong. There were absurdist philosophers before him. But he was this philosopher who believed in absurdism, which is basically the idea of there is this absurd space that lies in the space between the desperate human suffer need for understanding and the suffering therein and the silence of the universe in response. The inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents, as Lovecraft would put it. To some extent, but also to the fact of like, he said that there was this desperate need for something like God, for something like a purpose, for something like a higher call, a higher plane, and that does not seem to emerge anywhere. Right. Despite, so it's quite yeah, the opposite. Despite, despite you know the, the the striving for it, yes, you know, that that emerges, and and the in this and the striving, as I understand it. Um, you know, forms part of that contradiction. I mean, it's, I tried to, and as we said, it's, it's part of a longer, um, essay. It's a couple of pages, which we read out of, uh, 24 pages or so. Um, and I started at the beginning and I read through about eight pages. It's like, it's, do you know, yeah. Do you know that one video of, I think it's like John Cleese, like speaking, it's like English as heard by like non-English speakers. Yeah. And it's like, you know, very sibilant like noises that almost sound English, but like are actually incomprehensible. That was my experience reading this. It, it does feel a lot that way. Um, it's interesting because he did often see absurdism as this like um, answer to Marxism. Um, and that just comes from the fact that he was around so many Marxists. Um and existentialists, as it were, and a lot of those existentialists just kind of became Marxists, mm -hmm. um, like Sartre. Um, so did he, like, outright reject, like, historical materialism? Yes, yes. And I was actually, I've got some stuff on that, because he basically said that the historical view of history, um, he says that things exist more in the idea space, more the idea of, like... He thinks that like moral morality and ideas and concepts drive history. He was much closer to like the original Hegelian dialectic. Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 there's a pretty interesting quote 
from uh, George Novak wrote an essay on Marxism versus absurdism and, and existentialism um, that I find interesting. And so this is a quote from it. And at the beginning, it says that um, Marxism sees a lawful universe. Camus would say those laws only extend so far. And then he says, quote, for dialectical materialism, reality has developed in a lawful manner and is rationally explicable. The rationality of nature and human history is bound up with matter in motion. The concatenation of cosmic events gives rise to cause and effect relations that determine the quality and evolution of things. The physical preceded and produced the biological, the biological, the social, and the social, the psychological, and a historical series of mutually conditioned stages. The aim of science is to disclose their essential linkages and formulate these into laws that can help pivot, pilot human activity. The rationality, determinism, and causality of the universe process of material development do not exclude but embrace the objective existence and significance of absurdity and determinism and accident. However, these random features of reality are no more fundamental than regularity. They are not immutable and irremovable aspects of nature and history, but relative phenomena, which in the course of development can change the extent of becoming their own opposites. End quote. Basically, he's saying there, an absurdist is like, well, you can't, you know, the historical materialism doesn't account for X. And he's like, yeah, well, it kind of does because there are going to be like little moments, these moments of indeterminism, these moments of absurdism, these moments of accident are factored into this general thing. Mm -hmm. This is a framework. Basically, um, as Camus will later say, well, if you could explain everything, but you can't explain something, not in the sense of is inexplicable, but in the sense you don't have an answer and you're working towards it. If you don't have an answer for every question, then you have an answer to nothing. Whereas the Marxist would say, so what? Tide goes in, tide goes out. Can't explain that. Right. Yeah. And, and, and the, the Marxist would say, so what? Mm -hmm. You know, it like, okay, we don't know everything. We know enough. I okay, think that's see, the difference. Th and that makes me feel a little better because that's what was going through my head as I kept reading, you know, this, this, uh, the first eight pages or so. This was, okay, so what? So what? I, you know, not, you know, not that, not that, you know, you can't tease out, um, um, not that you can't tease out meaning here and there, right? Because, um, like here in this uh, first section. No, there's stuff legitimate to it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what he says about how he approaches, what Camus says about how he approaches, you know, what, which questions are critical or not is, you know, the, the implications of answering them, you know, and whence his, you know, uh, opening statement here, there is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide, right? Mm -hmm. It's this, um, you know, the question of, you know, deciding life is not worth living and removing yourself from it. You know, it's an important philosophical question, says he, because um, one potential end of it is indeed death. Mm -hmm. No, don't kill yourself. You're so good at rolling that rock. Aha. <laughs> Um, Camus, it's, it, it's not without merit, but here's what I would say. Absurdism to me feels like a way of dealing with alienation of capitalism more than it feels like a, uh, a unifying theory of life, a unifying philosophy. And, and what appealed to me, what appealed to 16, 17 year old Jacob beyond just seeing an argument, an argued philosophy versus, you know, growing up with a, this is true because it's true. Um, was this idea that we could say, hey, there are a lot of questions left unanswered. Hey, we do have this kind of deep need for a higher purpose in some, some capacity. Hey, the universe seems to be not answering to the extent that we are asking. Mm -hmm. But there is a nobility and something useful in that struggle towards something higher. Absurdism in, 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 in as... Um, 
as is symbol symbolized by Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill, which I like that. That's the best part of this to me, is Sisyphus is rolling the rock up the hill. That rock is going to roll back down, but there is something useful in the struggle. Something useful is created, if only in Sisyphus's own mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, his his cheek is stone itself. You know, his hands are, you know, clotted with earth. You know, he is... He is. He, I mean, he, it's it's a dialectic between him mm. and the stone, you know. And, and there is and there is value in that. The difference is, Camus sees that as eternally unchangeable, not as a condition which we must now strive. And there is some way to break out of it. There is some leap. There will be some moment. Mm. Um, not there will be no development for Camus. Like we can learn things, and it's not useful. That's the process of striving and being aware. Um, and I mean, like, I don't fundamentally agree, though I kind of get where he's getting at. Um, there are some interesting points that he makes. Um, like, he makes an interesting point saying, like, the fact that we're aware of ourselves and aware of what we don't know um, is why we don't have purpose. I find that to be interesting. He's like, the animal, like, you know, a dog doesn't need to be told what his purpose is. His purpose is being of the world. Right. You know? Right. And, you know, what he says, um, and I keep, and I keep hopping back to, to earlier, but like, I mean, what he says, I dig where he's like, you know, the mind's judgment, the body's judgment is as good as the mind's and the body shrinks from annihilation. Right. You know, fundamentally, I mean, you, it's, it's coming to your, it's developing your politics, developing, developing your philosophy through struggle. Right. You know, there are certain material needs that you respond to and that you want to, uh, and that you seek to address and correct and uh, struggle within, um, even if you haven't necessarily forged a framework for them yet. Mm-hmm. He, um, let's see. Here's another interesting quote from it, from the essay portion. Quote, I said that the world is absurd, but I was too hasty. The world in itself is not reasonable. That is all that can be said. But what is absurd is the confrontation of this irrational and the wild longing for clarity whose call echoes in the human heart. The absurd depends on much on as much on man as on the world. For the moment, it is all that links them together, end quote. Essentially, the absurd is a dialectic. It's a unity of opposites. Oh, the absurd exists because humans exist to observe it. There is not this uh, absurdism that is like floating out in the ether. It is created by humanity in the same sense uh, as purposes. Mm. Um, my favorite explanation of Camus is somebody saying, what is the end of Minecraft? Um, what is the goal of Minecraft? Now you could be a shit and say, kill the Ender Dragon, <laughs> but that's not really the answer. You know, there is no end game in Minecraft. You're there to play the game and do and make your own purpose. Um, though that can be kind of dangerous also as an ideology when you, when man, you know, can make himself God in another there's there's also a way of doing that too. Well, yes, you know, and I mean Sisyphus. I mean, there's a reason that Sisyphus is the hero, and not you know the 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 um, the gods above him that have shaped his uh, that have shaped his world, and you know rained this mm -hmm. or that thing down on him, right? He because they don't they don't have passions in the same way as he has passions, right? They don't have torture in the same way that he has torture. They're not forces of nature in the way that he is. You know, he has these things to contend with and to you know struggle to comprehend and overcome. Mm. He. Also puts, says this, quote, one of the only coherent philosophical positions is revolt. It is a constant confrontation between man and his own obscurity. It is an insistence upon an impossible transparency, end quote. So, you know, we, we go back to Sisyphus. We go back to him rolling the rock up the hill. Mm. He's not going to ever get the rock to the top of the hill. But 
it's okay and it's not a reason to kill yourself is basically what he's saying because there is like something noble and transcendent in it. And he has a brief moment. It's very weird that it's in here, but I do want to read it. Brief moment where he says, quote, I don't know whether this world has meaning that transcends, but I do know that I do not know and that it is impossible for me just now to know it, end quote. I think it's a very brief moment where he opens of like, hey, maybe they will have a breakthrough at some point. Mm-hmm. And I find that interesting. Well, yeah, because I mean, he, he, because he, he does call out right here um, at the end of that first half of the, uh, of the story portion, right? You know, if this myth is tragic, that is because its hero is conscious, right? Where would his torture be if at every step the hope of succeeding upheld him, right? Because, you know, you have those moments of despair. You have the, you know, you're conscious of your fate, right? Um, and, and what Camus is, um, I mean, what Camus is teasing out here is that, you know, absurdism, I mean, the absurd hero is a hero because he continues striving away at that absurdity, right? You know, the, it's, you know, to kill yourself is the easy way out, right? It's the retreat from that, um, it's the retreat from that dialectic, you know? Mm-hmm. It's the retreat, you know, it's the, it's the renouncing of that moment of uh, lucidity where you're walking back down the mountain and reflecting. You know, I mean, and essentially, I mean, you know, it's, you have the, um, you have, you know, he says there is no fate that cannot be surmounted by scorn, right? And it's giving up the ability to express that scorn that, you know, is the ultimate resignation. So we'll ask this then. If he is aware of the absurdity of, you know, conditions, um, and he also says, though, that, um, you know, the awareness of the absurdity is the problem. And if you could just live your life day to day, every day, unaware of it, just living life itself, then there would be no problem. There would be no absurdity. Then like, why not just kind of become a Buddhist? Why not just go with like, okay, well, I, the Thich Nhat Hanh, like when I drink the tea, I'm drinking the fullness of the tea. Mm-hmm. Like, why not, why not just embrace that? What, what, that, that is one thing I don't get. Because he's interested in the process of revolt. But to me, and this is another thing that kind of pulled me away from absurdism, is as poetic as the idea of feudal struggle is, it is feudal struggle in the end. And if there is a way out of that feudal struggle, if there is a more positive positive way, and I don't mean suicide, um, he, he rightfully points out the flaw in that, mm-hmm. Um but if there is this idea of like, oh, well, then living in the world and being of the world is is a superior mode of being, if that's if that's real, I don't understand why he doesn't advocate like just being in the world and like trying not to think about these higher things. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, because and this is what and this is what uh, frustrates me, right? Because, you know, it's I mean, this is this is what um, this is what sort of teasing at me as I, as I try and, uh, as I try and engage with this, right. Is because, um, when I read this again, I can't help but think, so what I can't help but think, so what's, what's your, um, as you, you know, it's, as you say, right. What's your end game here, right. You know, how are you, how are you going to situate yourself in this world that you have, um, that you have assessed the conditions of that you have assessed as essentially inescapable, right. What's, <clears throat> I just want to know what's what the next step is. And I would like that next step not to be, you know, something worn into the mountain. He he had this idea of building, I mean, in his activism, he did this, this building this freer, really emphasis on free and more moral, more egalitarian world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I would say that that doesn't necessarily have to be because or related to his absurdism, but obviously that that's there. Um, but, you know, notably this essay is very light on this idea of like what society shall be. He literally says, shall I write a manual for happiness? I'm tempted to. And it's like, well, no, well, maybe tease that out. I kind of wish you would. Like, I kind of wish you would talk more about your manual for happiness because if, you, if you've if you got it in your head how you can write a manual, unfortunately his like manual for happiness might be cheat on your wife but like <laughs> well, i mean you know there's also the possibility that like he just hadn't finished writing the title of the thing that he was uh, about to complete so the first man was actually supposed to be the first manual for happiness there you go see he he wasn't done with it yeah yeah so ultimately we tend to talk about narratives um so to briefly touch on the story of Sisyphus itself. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Greek legend comes from Homer, I believe, all of that. Sisyphus is this, like, interesting figure. Um, prob that this, this idea of this guy that is punished for this. Um, there's different, like, versions of it, but my, my, the best kind of interpretation of Sisyphus to me is just this guy who has challenged the gods and is punished for doing so, which makes him, like, this humanist hero. Um, there is... So what can we pull from that outside of absurdism? Well, there is... Um, what does interest me is he says you know, that um, in one sense he's the, he's the wisest and mo most pragmatic of all the Greeks. In another sense, he's a highwayman, mm -hmm. right? And that he doesn't necessarily see a contradiction in terms there, right? Which... It's interesting to me, right? Because, okay, if you're a highwayman, right... You probably, I mean, you're making your living waylaying travelers on the road, right? You're probably not all that well off. Or, you know, you're, you're, I mean, if you're the wisest and most pragmatic of the Greeks, you've determined that this is, that this is the, um, that this is the optimal, uh, way to, to live your life. What do we do with that? I mean, I think for him, wisdom comes down more to just that concept of like that, if the wisdom is in the striving for understanding and not in the living, um, which, which which makes absurdism contradictory to me, right? Because you have these two strains of it. You have the one strain that says, we make our own meaning, mm -hmm. go live your life. And you have the other strain that says, strive for the impossible. And so I the highwayman like, thing is fleeting, man. Yeah, I think so. I, I think I think if you do the highwayman interpretation, it's just like it has nothing to do with his occupation. It's all about what's going on between his ears. Exactly. What makes sense to him at the time to... to you know. Yeah, to get to the next day, to not kill himself. Um, but what I don't get... Um, what, 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 what I never was able to, you know, resolve is why that struggle, uh, why that struggle is meaningful if it's towards nothing, if I'm supposed to live life just as I will, um, and create my own purpose. Why not say Sisyphus makes a game of it and says, okay, how fast can I get the rock? Something like that. I think that is more, um, that, that is like the school of absurdism that people tend to, like the actual like absurdism people tend to adopt and tend to identify with of like, hey, I'm a nihilist materially, but I don't behave like one. Like I'm a nihilist who doesn't want to kill myself. Like that's mm -hmm. kind of what a lot of people like, which isn't what nihilism necessarily has to mean, but like that's what a lot of people mean when they call themselves absurdist. Yeah. But this extra bit about the, the, the eternal like unity of opposites that's designed to make everybody fundamentally miserable. Um, and I mean... Camus, like, gets into, like, the dialectic, too. Like, he has this quote, right, where he says, quote, If I accuse an innocent man of a monstrous crime, if I tell a virtuous man that he has coveted his own sister, he will reply that this is absurd. His indignation has its comical aspect, but it also has its fundamental reason. 
The virtuous man illustrates by that reply the definitive antinomy, antinomy, uh, antinomy, whatever, existing between the deed I am attributing to him and his lifelong principles. It's absurd, means it's impossible, but also it's contradictory. If I see a man armed only with a sword attack a group of machine guns, I shall consider his act to be absurd. But it is so solely by the virtue of the disproportionate disproportion between his intention and the reality he will encounter of the contradiction. I notice between his true strength and the aim he has in view. Likewise, we shall deem a verdict absurd when we contrast it with the verdict the facts apparently dictate. In all these cases, from the simplest to the most complex, the magnitude of the absurdity will be in direct ratio to the distance between the two terms of my comparison. There are absurd marriages, challenges, rancors, silences, wars, and even peace treaties. For each of them, the absurdity springs from a comparison. The absurd is essentially a divorce. It lies in neither of the elements compared. It is born of their confrontation. End quote. Yeah, divorce between man and life, his actor in his setting, is properly the feeling of absurdity. Yeah, you know, the, it's it's you know not just a it's not just a contradiction, but a you know a contradiction that is obvious perhaps to everybody but the person grappling with it, mm -hmm. maybe. And I guess absurdism is just becoming aware of it. Mm -hmm. And then, but I come back to then what? I don't know. Which is why I think, and I said it earlier, it works better as a philosophy to get you through the day and also something on the side. Like, hey, I'm in this absurdist position of like, this is silly. There is a nobility in the struggle. But like, there can be a greater struggle, right? I have the idea of like someone who's going to work at a bullshit job that they do not enjoy. And they're like, you know what? There is a nobility in getting through this day and making it happen. And whatever nobility I can find in it is good. But I am the out deliverator. You know? Right, I'm the deliverator. But then outside of it, what are you working towards? What, what are you trying to create? Whether that be through organizing, whether that be through creating art, something like that. I think there is a, I would be more interested in Sisyphus if on his walk down, he was like composing a poem in his head. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like he has this thing outside of what he is doomed to. And I know the doom is like supposed to represent death or whatever. Well, yeah. But. And you know, I don't think, and I don't think that's, um, I think, I think, I think Camus without specifically spelling it out, I think he does account for it. Right. You know, True. it's, you know, his, his, all Sisyphus is silent joy is contained therein. Right. His fate belongs to him. His rock is his thing. You know, it's, it's the, um, you know, the felling of the absurd springs from happiness. Right. It is this, it is this declaration that, you know, despite your, um, you know, you have this intractable situation that you're in and you're not going to let it drive you to that, uh, to that horizon. Is, does the rock belong to Sisyphus? That's a real question. Or is the rock the property of Hades? And is Hades his employer? Hmm. Well, I mean, Sisyphus is described as the proletarian of the gods. Right, see? The proletarian of the gods. But if he owns the means of production, then he is not a proletarian. He's more like a peasant in that situation. So I would challenge Camus' understanding of the historical materialist process. What if he carved the rock himself and then he's like, you know, in that professional handicraft sort of space? Is it possible that Sisyphus is, you know, contract labor? He's an Uber driver of sorts. Um, <laughs> he's getting a percentage of every rock rolled up the hill. An, an Uber where you have a guy just like roll a fucking like, like yap stone coin from the South Pacific to your house and have them carve it in various ways. Yeah, there's no particular reason to do it. It's like that image of all the guys pushing the bricks, the big brick stones, and then the one guy carves it into a circle and rolls it, and it's easier. And then the guy is like, but I ordered 10 bricks. What is this shit? <laughs> uh, that's Sisyphus, actually, at the end of the day. Um, 
I would be remiss to talk not talk about my favorite interpretation of Sisyphus, which is in Supergiant's video game Hades. Let's go. Um, Hades, I mean, has the ultimate Sisyphus in it, in which this guy is this big sort of... Uh, I, 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 somewhere he's like someone online called him a wise himbo. And I don't know why that's so funny. He's just this huge guy who's like a little simple, but nice. Um, but he's like, I used to be a king or whatever, but now I'm rolling up my rock and I'm just having a good old time. And in that, the interpretation of why he's happy is because he names the rock Boldy, carves a little face into it, and then has conversations with it. Um, and if you so choose in that game, you can acknowledge Boldy as a character and, uh, you can give it gifts. You can give Boldy gifts, and you'll get um, you'll get little you'll get little power ups if you give Boldy gifts, and that's nice. You know they're not very good power ups; they're usually not actually worth the nectar given. But you're not doing it like for the power ups. You're doing it for the you know for the uh, the satisfaction of you know your fucking pet rock. Yeah, one must imagine Zagreus happy for sure. Um, not just because you know he's in a. Uh, polyamorous relationship with Furies and I was about to say, so so people are imagining Zagreus happy. Yeah, a lot of people a lot of people are imagining Zagreus happy I'm doing it right now. No, um (laughs) um there is, I mean like actually Hades is an interesting point too because it it represents a narrative in which someone dies over and over and over trying to achieve a higher goal. That's actually quite a you know, common trope in media, especially video games, you know, with the roguelike genre, which is so popular. But I mean, anything where someone's dying endlessly, um, you know, one thinks of like, I don't know, Edge of Tomorrow or Groundhog Day or something like that. Edge of Tomorrow. The closest we'll ever get to a Dark Souls movie. It was fun. It's fun as hell. Like, I, it's it's weirdly good for what it is. Um, um, don't, I, in, in, in its way, it is this, uh, it is like Sisyphus, but I, I find it more interesting when it is like there is something to achieve, there is a goal to be achieved. In Edge of Tomorrow, they are trying to win. In Groundhog Day, he is trying to break the cycle. In Hades, Zagreus is trying to escape the underworld. It might take him a trillion tries, but he's trying to get out. Sisyphus never being able to roll the rock up the hill, it makes it very difficult to find that like that beauty in it. And I, the beauty to me in something like Hades and in this this examination of Sisyphus is like the face in the rock is the like little thing at your workplace that keeps it from being fucking miserable. Yeah. You know, it's the, it's, it's the small iterations right within each, within each cycle, you know, you roll it up and it's slightly different. Yeah. You know, this time I got the Poseidon boon and then of course you're going to be able to do, and if you pair that with the Hermes boon and you get more dashes, then you're going to be doing those sort of water explosions everywhere you go. And you're just going to easily clear all your enemies. Oh yeah. Case. So sometimes you get incredible bills and sometimes you just suck. And you, yeah. subs- you subscribe to that when you boot the game up. You, you acknowledge that, okay, like some runs are going to be just cracked and some of them, you know, I get cracked. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and sometimes the rock is cracked. I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm working on it. The boulder has a crack in it and that is, uh, and then Camus. Well, the boulder has a crack in Camus it. Camus' you know, ex-wife just... was on crack. I don't know. There's this all kind of... <laughs> if the boulder's got a crack in it, like that's a couple of stars off your fucking like boulder uber guys rating. It, it definitely, definitely is. Well... You know, I, I, you know, in all honesty, definitely don't have as much to say on this as I typically do with part of this is just a lack of plot summary. And I know this has maybe been like a little meandering and weird and people are like, well, where's the novel at? And it's like, okay, well, 
you know, we're, we're, we're doing something different and weird here. It's Thanksgiving week. So, you know, maybe right now you're listening to this, you're stuffed with turkey. You're a little tired. You're, you're just like, I want to understand absurdism. Well, now you do. Um, and if you don't, then you have to, you have to listen again. Um, because we explained it perfectly, actually. There was no errors in our explanation. Oh, yeah. Well, you I mean, should listen to it in a cycle, endlessly. Oh, exactly. You know, and maybe at some point it'll be, it'll be different. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> if you listen to this episode 300 times, you, it will be different. In the, the opening narration, I'll actually stumble in like a couple of different places from when I actually stumbled, you know, so be on the lookout for that, you know? Well, what's not known is that we record every episode 10 times, right? And then we uh, the we used the second best recording. The first best recording is of course put on a um, put on a thumb drive and buried in an undisclosed location. Oh yeah, yeah, no, that shit's the day the clown cried. That's stuff we're gonna see the light of day. Yeah, well, I mean, you you could potentially find it, but you would have to eternally be digging holes, um, you know, in an endless cycle that will likely be fruitless. And you know what? Every hole you dig is going to be slightly different. There's going to be a slightly different face in that hole. That's true. You're, yeah. If you are seeing faces in holes, please, you know, are we sponsored by BetterHelp yet? Like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's getting increasingly elaborate. Uh, what do happen to the eight other episodes? I'm not quite sure, but maybe it's the reason that I'm running out of space on my computer. I'm not sure. Well, Joss, we've talked about Camus. My main takeaway from Camus is... Honestly, less to do with his book and more to do with, hey, man, if you're going to um, say you speak for liberation, you know, um, speak for liberation and, and don't and don't, you know, hold to it. I know that's not what that's about, but just reading about his life, I got increasingly refrustrated remembering so many of the things he espoused so loudly in his works and plays and art and uh, how how woefully short he came. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, you know, decolonization was able to. It, to some extent, still happening, needs to happen, but colonial movements had their victories. Um, and, uh, you know, um, and if absurdism helps you get through the day, that's awesome. But uh, ultimately, if not every detail of the universe lines up, I think enough of them line up for us to know how to build a better society. And that's not enough of a reason to reject like a unifying theory of like history. Right. Right, exactly. You know, and I mean, it's as far as as far as that goes, right? You know, it's it's a step again that gets you through the day, right? But you would rather that step be, you know, what's the what? There, there, there's a adjective derived from the name of Orpheus, right? You know, walking Orf- Orphean, Orphic, maybe like Orphic. Let's call it Orphic, right? Well, Orphean cults. That was a thing. Ooh. Wait, do they just like dig big holes and then like crawl out of them, but they leave one person behind? That would be really cool, but no, they were like into, they were actually into cycles of death and rebirth because they were into, um, they were into like the Ode of Orpheus, which mm-hmm. included the legend of Zach, of Zagreus and Dionysus, the original Zagreus, the one from mythology. Yes. They were into Dionysus, Zagreus, um, whole thing. Most famous member, Pythagoras, guy who made the Pythagorean theorem. Yo, yeah. A squared plus B squared, A squared plus B, yeah. That thing. The whole thing. Yeah, no, he came up with that. I dropped um, math, y'all. Well um, but yeah, you know, you want that journey to be on a to be on a quest that takes you out of hell, right? Rather than up a mountain again and again. That's my thought, you know. And who knows where Camus would have ended up had he lived longer than I mean fucking Lovecraft outlived him and Lovecraft died young too. I, I gotta say though, he would have seen a lot more anti-colonial movements and he might have had way more opportunities to make an ass of himself. So maybe for his own legacy's sake. <laughs> who knows? 
Or maybe he would have been like, hey, my mom doesn't live there. I don't give a shit about those <laughs> I wish I wish Lovecraft had seen more anti-colonial movements and just gotten increasingly just increasingly panicked. It's just like, how is this happening? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. He would live to see the continued uh, yeah, um that wish, you know, Kemu would live to see the continuing colonial aspirations of Egypt as it was repeatedly, you know, checks notes, attacked by Israel over and over <laughs> as a proxy by the for the United States. <laughs> and, you know, you know, but check up on us in 100 years when the Bouazizi Empire is around and, uh, you know, Kemu is just having having nightmares about it. Well, folks, we, as always, appreciate you listening to this episode. Do we have... Do we know what we're reading next week? Uh, I haven't a clue. Um, we want to is... decide live on the podcast, show them how the sausage gets made here. Well, let's see. We've done I'll a cut couple, this if not. We've yeah. done a couple of Japan things. We've done some philosophical texts. We did a graphic novel fairly recently. I mean, we did a regular novel in Battle Royale. So, yes. you know, it's not like we need to return to form. We already have. Um, but Battle Royale was also quite long. We could read like a Star Wars Extended Universe novel or something. Go Fuck it. Direction. Fuck it. Let's go. We could do like Jedi Academy or something. That one's fucking bizarre. Yeah? Yeah. Jedi Academy is 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 the first one. Uh, Fuck it. We both. Let me double check that it's the book I'm remembering before I say it. Although it's the Jedi Academy trilogy. We're not going to read the whole trilogy. Um, the first book is Jedi Search. We could do that. We could do one of the Thrawn books, but the Thrawn books kind of have to be talked about in, like, cohesion, I think. We could do another conservative one. Like what? Triggered. I, I don't... I can't do Triggered. I, I, uh... I don't know that I can handle Triggered. Oh, um... American Sniper's on the list. Hmm. Could do that. I mean, hell, we could. We could do, um... We could do the Stover Revenge of the Sith. We could do a good Star Wars novel. I would love that. Then let's do Stover Revenge of the Sith. Fuck yeah! There we go. Okay, um, I'll cut this to make it. Uh, I'll cut this to make it a little more coherent. Mm-hmm. But we'll. I'll leave a little of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, you heard it here first, folks. We're going to talk about Matthew Stover's Revenge of the Sith, the novelization of Revenge of the Sith that is no longer canon, but should be because it makes the movie good. Like it makes. The movie, which has its, well, we'll talk about it. It has its merits, and it also has its absolute CGI monstrosities. It, like, takes it and synthesizes it, makes it interesting. Uh, if I remember correctly, politics of it, kind of interesting. Actually gets into the political side of Star Wars more. We can talk about Star Wars, all the fucking weirdness it is. Maybe I'll even find a guest for it. We'll see. Um, well, folks, we appreciate it. Um, Camus, if you're out there listening, rolling up your rock. Um, I, I hope the walk down, you know, is okay. You know, if you are rolling up a rock every week, um, you should be listening to podcasts. Like I, that would make, that would make Sisyphus happy, no doubt. I hope, you know, your lungs are, you know, equal to the task of that and not fucking cheesecloth. Like I can only imagine what that's like. I can only imagine. Um, unfortunately, based just tuberculosis carryover. That's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> fucking ghost tuberculosis. <laughs> and on that note, have a good one, y'all. Be sure to tip your rock uber.
Thank you for listening to Socialist Shelf Radio.